And if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, open them to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, our text this morning will be verses 14 through 29. This morning's message couldn't be any more timely to my own soul as we would consider the battle of unbelief. Growing up in Navy housing, we would live in these duplexes, and it's what the Navy would provide us. Um, And I remember growing up in Middletown in the duplex there, and out back we had this tiny little fenced-in yard, and dividing the yards was a little kind of six-foot wall, and the six-foot wall, as a young lad, six, seven years old, was a perfect size to climb. And so I would climb up this six-foot wall in my backyard, and I would be able to scale from the top of the wall over to the shed. And then I would pull myself up onto the shed, and I would get onto this shed, now eight, nine feet up in the air, and I soon realized that I, get, I would get stuck. And when I would get onto the shed... It was a lot easier to get on than it was to get down. I was terrified. I didn't want to jump. And I remember this happening multiple times. And every time that it happened, my fear would start to rise, and I would start to yell out for help. And you know what it was? Dad! Dad! Someone! But Dad! And after a little bit of time of hearing the yells for dad, he would come out into the backyard and he would look up and see me on top of the shed. And he knew better than to ask the question, how did you get up there? (laughs) But I would say, I need help. And he would stand there and he would look up at me and say, well, then jump. Are you going to catch me? I'm standing right here, son. But in that moment, as I was up on the shed, I was battling with belief and unbelief. I believed my dad was strong enough to catch me, but my unbelief was, what if he doesn't? What if I just jump into him and I knock him over and we both get hurt? Well, in a battle of belief and unbelief, I trust my dad. So I close my eyes and I jump and he catches me. And he caught me the second time. And then the third time he caught me before I got up there. So then I didn't have to, have to do it that time. But as I think about that as a young lad, the battle of belief and unbelief, even with my father there, I'm reminded of this passage too, of another father who struggled. This father struggled with unbelief. With our Bibles open, let's look at Mark chapter 9, verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. 
And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out. And he said to them, this kind can only be driven out by anything but prayer. This ends the reading of the word of God. This morning, we are descending from the Mount of Transfiguration into the Valley of Unbelief. This section here is connected to the previous one and all the gospel writers will give us the account of Jesus on the mountain transfigured in his glory and immediately followed by this account. This account of unbelief. Besides the two healings of the blind men that kind of bracket this section of Mark, this is the last miracle, normal miracle that Jesus performs In Mark's gospel, he curses a fig tree, but that was dealing more with authority to come. So this is the last miracle we will see in an action-packed gospel that is full of miracles in the first eight chapters. This is of significance for Mark as he records this for us. And initially, we might read this and say, what does this really have to do with all the events that are taking place around it? It seems like this healing, this miracle might be a little bit out of place. But no doubt it is not. It actually continues in a sequence of events. As I had said that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this. But however, we must understand, Mark is the, is the writer that gives us the most details. He's the one who gives us the most words here, more than Matthew, more than Luke, even though Mark writes with brevity. So this is important to understand. When Mark gives us more, this is very important for his audience, and for us. And I want us to understand here, as we think about what was just read, on a high level, this lesson is not about Jesus' power to heal. He has clearly established that through his first eight, first eight chapters. No, what Mark is pointing at here is the fight against unbelief. And if we would really look at Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 27, where, Jesus, where Peter makes the great confession that Jesus is the Christ, the, all the sequence of events that are taking place from Mark 8, 27 up until 9, 29 here is really a picture of the Christian life. Think about it. There's the confession of Jesus as the Christ by Peter. Then there's the path of discipleship. What does it mean to follow Christ? It'll cost you everything. Everything. 
Then there's the seeing Christ in His glory, this, this glimpse of the glorious Jesus from the mountain to the valley of unbelief. And if we're honest with ourselves, we have fought this battle. We have fought the battle against unbelief. And for many of us, even here in this room right now, this is the battle that you are facing right now. But I want to assure you of this. If you are battling unbelief, that does not make you any lesser of a follower of Jesus than the person sitting next to you that is strong in faith. Keep that in mind. We often will have some of these really negative thoughts when we battle unbelief. But let us enter into this scene right here before us and consider what God has for us this morning. And I want you to notice the setting in which we will enter. This is be verses 14 through 19. And we enter into a faithless problem that is taking place. Peter, James, and John with Jesus, they reunite with the nine. So the three of the disciples plus Jesus have gone up to the mountain. They have descended now and they are coming back to meet with the other nine that weren't invited to this Mount of Transfiguration. And what do they find? They find their companions, all nine of them, in a heated argument with the scribes. So they're coming down from this high point. They're thinking, this is great, only to see this in front of them. Yes, even followers of Jesus argue. <laughs> and what we see here is there's this argument going about, and it can get a little confusing with the pronouns that Mark uses here. Understand this. In verse 16, Jesus asks them, what are you arguing about with them? Well, who's them, and what's the antecedent? Listen, I did the homework. He's talking to the scribes, and he's, he's asking the scribes, why are you arguing with the disciples? Jesus is coming to the defense of his disciples. He's not siding with the scribes and siding with the, the crowds. He's with his disciples, and he's asking, what is this argument taking place about? Why is this commotion occurring? But the information, the source of this argument that we see taking place does not come by the mouth of the scribes or even from the crowd. There's a voice in this crowd that is assembled, that speaks out and provides the context for the conflict that is going on here. And it is from a father in the crowd. And this is what he says. Look again. Verse 17. He says, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it, call, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. Here's the source of the conflict, and here's why they're arguing. This man heard that Jesus was nearby. He knows the condition of his son, and he brought his boy, or his, maybe even his teenage son, older, we don't know the age, but he brings his child to Jesus, to be healed. Put yourself in this man's shoes for just a minute as we think about what he was dealing with. As a parent, it is hard to see your child suffer. It is some of the worst pain that we can go through. And so he has this suffering child that's been suffering in this way since childhood, and he hears that Jesus is around. So he has this slight bit of optimism. Optimism. So he goes to find Jesus, and he can't find him anywhere. So who is, what does he encounter? 
he encounters the second string, the nine. Not even the, the first string guys are up on the mountain with Jesus. So he finds the nine, and he brings his son. So in his attempt to bring him to Jesus, he gets the backup squad. And so he brings the boy, and they size up the situation. Okay, there's a boy with a demon. We've been down this road before. We have done this before. Mark 6, 13, when Jesus sent them out on their first mission, they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So they've already had success on this mission. So they say, sure, bring us the boy. We can cast out this demon. And much to their surprise, they make no progress. They're trying whatever their, their means. The, the scene begins to turn public. It might have been the father and the boy and the nine. And a, a crowd starts to amass around them. They're failing at their objective. The scribes get word of this. Oh, the, the healers in Jesus' name are failing everything we wanted. Perfect. So they run out because this is an awesome opportunity for them. For them to see the disciples, the nine, who are publicly humiliated. They're trying to perform a task that they are unable to do. So the scribes come out and say, see, you're fake. You're fake. You're failures. We've been waiting for this moment. And so this argument, it's never been real. It's all been a show. This is an argument that comes and it's fueled by unbelief. And the disciples get sucked right into it. Because it always takes two to argue. And so here we see a faithless problem. And you know what? The scribes are no different then than the people in our world today. They look for Christians to fail to say that it's fake. Right? Because they want to throw out the founder because of the people. It's approaching even Christianity with unbelief. And so they had already made up their minds it's not true. They just needed a reason. And so we see here the faithless problem on the part of the scribes, on the part of the disciples. Because Jesus, in verse 19, look, look again here, how does he address the situation after he's been given the context? Oh, faithless generation. He's looking to the crowd. He's looking to the scribes. He's looking to the disciples. He's saying, everybody here, this is a whole just mess of faithlessness. This is a faithless problem. And we see it in the disciples. Why did they fail? Their failure ultimately is a result of unbelief. That's the point of the passage. Why? They rested upon past success for handling the situation in front of them. They were not resting upon God. They were presumptuous in this situation. They were unprepared. That's what Jesus tells them in the lesson at the very end. And so how does Jesus respond? Let's get a new nine, right? These are the master's men. Failures, weak, presumptuous, unprepared. These are the master's men. And he does not turn away from them. How does Jesus respond to this situation? He says about the boy, bring him to me. This is the point I want us to see here, is that despite the disciples' failure, Jesus is still committed to doing good. Despite their failures, Jesus does not cease to do good. This isn't a disciple-only problem. No, this is something we face. 
We must understand that even despite our failures, our letting down the king, our unbelief, our weak faith, sometimes even no faith at all, Jesus is still committed to doing good. Jesus is doing a good work even in spite of you, through you, to you, for his sake, that he would be glorified in your life. Remember what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So the goodness of God, the goodness of Christ, is not dependent upon your faith. It is who he is. And so, despite the faithless problem, despite the scribes, despite the crowds that want to show, he says, bring me the boy, because I'm going to do a good work. And what we see here in this next section, verses 20 through 24, is a faithful confession. The, she, the scene now shifts. There's been this large scene. There's a big crowd. Now it's going to be a dialogue between a father and the son. Verse 20. Notice here. The boy comes and falls before Jesus and begins convulsing. This is a sad scene. You can't read this emotionless. I don't know how we could. This is a hurting boy. He's in bad shape. Think again of this father. He's been caring for his needy son for years. This isn't a one-day thing. He's attending to his needs often. Luke tells us that this is the man's only son. You know, as a parent, you find out that you're going to have a child. And it's scary. It's exciting. You get the news. You're fearful. You're a whole ball of emotions, but you are excited. The day comes, and if you're a father and you find out or the child comes out and it's a boy, you're like, oh, I got some hopes and dreams now. You're carrying all my legacy. The father has big dreams for his firstborn son. As his son starts to grow up, this father's son gets plagued with a demon, quite possibly even a form of epilepsy. The prayer of the Father shifts from God, may he grow up to be strong and productive to Lord, keep him alive today. And it becomes a fight to live every day. This father is a hurting man. This is a sad scene with this boy as he convulses and he falls on the ground and rolls about foaming at the mouth before Jesus. Jesus, the great physician, asks the question, how long has it been like this? Not because he needed to know, but he wanted the father to reflect because of what he was about to do. It's been like this for years, Jesus. You can hear the father cry out, Jesus. He is a helpless boy. This spirit causes him to inflict pain upon himself. He throws himself in fire. He throws himself in water. But Jesus, let me tell you, this boy is also resilient. Although the demon has sought to destroy him, it has not prevailed against my boy. Despite all the setbacks and all the obstacles that he has faced, he has not given up. And then the father says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us. Help us please. Oh, we can just hear the father's cry out of a love for his child. 
a desperate cry. And Jesus said to him, verse 23, he corrects him. But he doesn't correct him in a, in a stiff rebuke. No, it is as though Jesus says, friend, if I can. The issue is not my ability. It's do you believe? Well, think about this man. He's been struggling all his life with his boy. He's brought him before the disciples to be utterly disappointed and see the colossal failure. His faith is shaken in this moment. He's weak. He's distraught. He's discouraged. He is battling unbelief. Brothers and sisters, we are all going to face circumstances in our lives that will put our faith to the test. Do not allow the circumstances of life to be the fuel for your faith. You will be disappointed. Faith is to ride on top of the waves of circumstance, not to be sucked down into the valley of unbelief and despair. Faith rides the waves of circumstance. Charles Spurgeon says, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. If you get sucked down by the circumstances of life that are causing unbelief, oh, let me encourage you to fight. Don't stay there. And this was the correction, all that the father, this father needed. What does he say? Verse 24. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. This is a faithful confession. Years of struggle, sleepless nights, crying over the condition of his sons. All of his hopes and dreams of what he expected were shattered. Now he just wants his boy to stay alive. He heard about the miracle worker, yet he was utterly disappointed by his disciples. And now he's standing face to face with God. I believe Help my unbelief. It's as though he's saying, Jesus, I believe I am, I am here. Oh, but my faith is weak. You know, unbelief lies around the corner of everyone's heart. And he cries out, help my unbelief. This is important to understand because the, what this, fa- this boy's father does is he recognizes his own heart and the battle to believe. This needs to be our prayer. This needs to be taken and applied to our lives. We need to have the same honesty and humility of this prayer. I believe. Help my unbelief. It is a prayer of faith. It is honest. It is authentic. It is raw. It is real. And it should characterize us. Let's just break down this statement. Here in verse 24, he says, first, I believe. Well, what is this dealing with? This is what he's dealing with, what he knows to be true. I believe. This is, this is the truth objectively that I believe. This is what I know. And then he says the next statement, but my unbelief. Okay, so this is what he knows to be true. What's his unbelief? This is how he feels. Okay, so what we know to be true is what we believe, but sometimes how we feel fuels our unbelief. And what's the word that's sandwiched in the middle? 
help. He says, help. Let's not lose sight of this word. Only those who know they need it ask for it. Help. This is the request of his prayer. Help me. Living with small children, help is something we get all the time. Except they can't even sign it right. I think that's help. We worked on that, right? Okay. Yeah, they, that, that's what they do. They need help. Help, help me unwrap my candy. I'm like, I've been unwrapping candy for days. They need help with this. Help me in the bathroom. Help, 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 help. Help yourself. No, but we see that they know that they need it, so they ask for help. What are we to do? when we feel ourselves being pulled in opposite directions. I believe, and here's my unbelief, help. We must not be afraid to ask for help. Ask for help. Seek Christ. Seek the Lord. Preach the gospel to your heart. This man wasn't saying, Lord, help me to help myself. I need you. I need, I need more than me. I think sometimes we just need to get real. We need to get real with ourselves, with the Lord and with others, and admit it. And say, I need help. I'm not okay today. No. The waves are crashing, and I feel like I'm drowning in unbelief. What I know hasn't changed, but how I feel is where I'm to the point of even questioning everything. To the point where someone might say, am I even a Christian? This is how low I've gotten. Let me tell you, if you struggle with unbelief, great. You are welcome here. You know what the Bible says, but your heart says something completely different. Battle, fight. There's a place for you here. Are you someone that needs help? I know someone that helps. The Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a Rhode Islander, you say, I got a guy for that. But Jesus, the great physician, is the one whom we can reach out to. And he is there to help. So we should make this man, as we think about this man's faithful confession, we need to adopt that as our own. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And what was the result? We see it in twofold. We see mercy and grace as a result. First, you see a merciful reward as Jesus hears the honest, raw prayer of this father crying out for the help of his son as he battles unbelief, but he presses forward. Jesus rebukes the spirit in the boy. Jesus permanently sets his protective care upon him by banishing the demon forever, never to come into him again. So Jesus heals him, sets his love upon him. He falls to the ground. Jesus grabs him and raises him up. What is that a picture of? This is salvation. This is what Mark is showing us here. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And Jesus comes in and saves the son. He responds to the faithful confession of the man because Jesus delights in faith. And Jesus delights, the whole, the, the whole council of the Trinity delights in the faithful prayers of the saints. Jesus rewards those who faithfully seek him. I want you to observe here that it was not the magnitude of this, man, this father's faith 
but it was the measure. What do I mean by that? Although there's a mixture of belief and unbelief in this boy's father as he makes the great faithful confession to Jesus, it is even the smallest measure of faith triumphs. This is why Matthew says in his account of this that if you have faith the grain of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be moved. And it will be moved. Nothing will be impossible for you. It's not the magnitude of faith, but it is the measure of faith. I believe, help my unbelief. So as believers, we should pray expectantly. We should pray fervently. And we should believe that God is going to do great things. And we should not be surprised when it happens. You ever pray for something? Prayer gets answered. And you're like, whoa, that really happened. Well, did you believe it was going to happen? Sometimes we'd say no. Father, Lord, I pray that you would save the government officials. I bet half of you would drop dead if Joe Biden got saved today. <laughs> but you pray for it, right? Well, God... Do we believe it? Are we serious about the things that we pray for? The, bo- the boy's father believed, requested a miracle in faith despite his battle with unbelief, and Jesus gave him a merciful reward. He healed the boy. He saved him. He raised him to new life. From a merciful reward to a gracious lesson, that he also shows to his disciples. While Jesus there in verses 28 and 29, Jesus chides the unbelief of the generation for for, for, for showing faithlessness, he privately teaches his disciples here a lesson. It is a gracious lesson. They were publicly humiliated and defeated. That's not always a bad thing. Sometimes God's greatest school is to publicly humiliate you so that he can break you, so that he can make you in the way that he wants you to be. They had a lot to learn from their failure. And so they asked Jesus, why did we fail? We had succeeded before, verse 28. We've done this before. How come this time it didn't happen? And Jesus' answer to them basically is this, only by prayer. Only by prayer. You were not prepared That was your problem. Prayerlessness and unbelief are two sides of the same coin. One's heads, one's tails. They fuel each other. Are you battling with unbelief? Are you struggling with unbelief? How's your prayer life? Are you ceasing in being consistent in your prayers? And you're wondering why you're starting to struggle with assurance and belief. These go together. Prayerless and unbelief, prayerlessness and unbelief are like running on a hamster wheel, getting frustrated that you're not getting anywhere. You got to get off. You got to break the cycle. I'm not saying that if you pray, all your unbelief will go away. That would be easy, wouldn't it? I wish it were that simple. But I will tell you that belief and prayer, faith and prayer, go hand in hand. Action without prayer is faithlessness. Prayer without action is foolishness. So what we see here is that Jesus is gracious, even with the unbelief of his disciples. Instead of pushing them away because they failed, they were presumptuous, they were 
getting ahead. They were moving too fast. No, he invites them to draw near to him. He brings them closer. And I think we need to understand that even as we battle unbelief, prayerlessness, getting ahead of God, lagging too far behind, God does not push us away, but rather invites us to draw near to him. Your unbelief is the only thing that's going to push you away from God. God will never hold it out against you. He invites his children to come close. And if we're honest, we all battle unbelief in a variety of areas. And we, like the father here of this passage, need to cry out, I believe, help my unbelief. We need to take the lesson that Jesus gives here and draw near to him in prayer, in dependence upon him. Because it is closeness to Jesus that calms our fears, that subdues our anxiety, that strengthens our faith and dispels unbelief. When my children are close to me, wrapped up in my arms, they're not battling unbelief. Their fears are laid aside. They are assured of their father's love for them. They know they are safe. They know they are cared for. They know they are valued. They know they're protected. And as children of God, we are to draw near to our loving father as his beloved children as we battle unbelief. And so from this section here, we do see that it is a true battle. Spurgeon also said, doubt the man who has never doubted. And I think that is a wise statement to make. But taking this point here, I want to drive home three brief applications that I have noticed in my own life in the contemporary church of areas of unbelief that have plagued many. And the first one I want to, I, I, I submit to you, is low views of the love of God. When we think about unbelief, so often Christians struggle with low views of the love of God. It's not that we think too much upon the love of God. And, and I think what we've sought to do is, because we've seen a pendulum swing one way, we need to go the other way. You can never talk too much about the love of God. You can never think too high of the love of God. You can never make too much of God's love. Now, you can overemphasize that to the expense of other attributes, sure. We need a balanced approach in knowing who God is and all the attributes of God, but you've never thought God was too loving. So we battle with low views of the love of God. We battle unbelief with questions like, does God actually love me? How could these things be happening to me if God loves me? If God loved me, why do I not have a spouse? Or why do I still have an unbelieving spouse? Why is there tension in my home? Why are my kids prodigals? If God loved me, why is this happening to me? We might even ask questions like, why, God, did you allow those things to happen to me in my past? Why did you allow that cancer? Or why did you allow that person to die that meant so much to me in my life? So we start to have low views of the love of God. And it raises this tyrannical view. Listen, I cannot answer any of those questions. 
And we have why questions that we might not ever get answered. But this I will tell you, that God's answer is perfect to that question. And we can't see where God is leading us or the circumstances of life that have driven us to where we are right now. But I believe, help my unbelief, that God is loving. Friends, if you are struggling or wondering if God loves you or not, get above the the waves of the circumstances and fix your eyes upon the cross. If you want to see the display of God's love for you, you need to look beyond your life and you need to look back, really, upon the death of Christ. Because that's where you see God's love displayed for sinners. As you're beholding Christ dying on a cross, understand that at the end of God's sentence that says, I love you, the death of Christ on the cross is the exclamation point on that sentence. It is demonstrative. It is decided. It is deliberate. And has been demonstrated for the whole world to see. We don't have the answers to why things happen, why some live and some die. But if you are struggling with, does God love me? You need to look to the Son. Don't look within. Don't look to your circumstances. Look to Christ. Spurgeon also said his, in one of his masterful word pictures, he was talking about beholding the suffering Christ upon the cross with the eye of faith. And he says, in that moment, as Christ is suffering and Spurgeon puts himself in front of the cross and he's looking up upon the agony of the Son, he asks the question, does he love me more than him? Because in that moment, it would seem as though the Father loves me because of the suffering of him. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes on him shall not perish but have everlasting life. First area of application, low views of the love of God fueled by unbelief. Second, low views of God's work in this world. Watch the news, you will be afraid. Scroll on social media and you will be discouraged. But remember Christ's promise, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He's the architect. He's the builder. It's his church. He's the protector. God is building the church. God is saving sinners. God is sanctifying his saints. Understand this, Christian, there are more true believers alive in the world today than in the history of Christianity. The church right now is at its all-time largest, not all-time smallest. Yes, though it is sick in some places, compromised in others, it is a beautiful bride because it is the bride of Christ. Every Christian should be an optimist because God is on the throne Because we can look out there, we can see what's happening in the Middle East, we can see apathy in the pews, we can see so much. Jesus is building his church, and he is stronger. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in this world. I can wake up every day and smile, despite everything else. Jesus reigns. God is doing a work in this world. He is saving sinners. And until that last one has come in, God is going to continue to build his church until he says enough. And then the end comes. So, as we might, we might look out pessimistically, oh, the world is going so bad. Listen, there's nothing new under the sun. Solomon told us that two, 3,000 years ago. Understand this. You've been called into this great work. 
You have been called into the kingdom-building role and responsibility as a believer in Jesus Christ. You have been called to please God and make disciples of Jesus Christ. And as we do so, let us live with an optimism a hopefulness for the future. My children, I want them to grow up in a healthier church, a stronger church. And what can I do? I must contribute to that. Same as you. Let us be optimistic about what God is doing and let us move forward in faith. We don't need to hide. We don't need to pull back. Light has always won over darkness. I've never seen darkness put out a candle before. So live hopeful for the future. Contribute to building the healthy church for the generations to come. And a final way in which we can struggle and battle with unbelief is low views of the closeness of God. So it's the low views of the love of God. We can have low views of God's work in the world. And oftentimes we can have low views of the closeness of God. Our unbelief can cause us to be functional deists where God is distant. God is up there. God rolled the cosmic dice and spoke everything into existence, and then just let it unfold. We can have a big view of the, of the transcendence of God. God is huge. The, the, earth is, the earth is his footstool. But we can misunderstand and misapply the imminence of God. He is close. He is near to his people. Believer, I want to remind you, even this morning, that you have a God that cares You have a God that holds you in the palm of his hand. You have a God that has numbered every hair on your head. And he loves you. And he is working in this world. And you matter to him. You know, I was thinking about prayer the other day. And I live in a house with lots of people. And sometimes they all start talking to you at once. And you're like, how do I do this? Like, one at a time, please. And then I thought, how many people are praying to God at this moment? Thousands, millions maybe. And he hears every prayer individually because he's imminently close to his people. God loves you. God is working in this world. God is close. Don't let my unbelief rule what you know to be true. And if it is, we say help. Help my unbelief. Remember, Despite the disciples' unbelief and the Father's struggles, Jesus is merciful and gracious, and he invites us all to draw near in faith. The other day I was, I was home, and I heard this yell from the backyard, Dad! Dad! So I, I make my way out to the backyard, and I can't tell where the yell is coming from. It's coming from the back corner, and I get out there, and there's a boy who has climbed a tree. And he's gotten so high, he can't get down. Dad, Dad, I said, how'd you get up there? Well, I climbed up the tree. Well, why don't you get to, Dad, I can't get down. Help. Help me. So in that moment, I put my arms out and I say, jump. Just as my father did 30 some odd years later. And are you going to catch me? I said, I'll think about it. <laughs> Of course I'm going to catch you, son. And it's almost as I hear, help my unbelief, and jumps out and reaches his father's arms. This is how our heavenly father is. He catches his children. He loves his children. He cares for them. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Father, thank you 
that you love us, that you have set your love upon us, not because of our amount of faith, not because of any good works in us, not because we had any faith at all, but even the faith that we do have is a gift from you. So we rejoice in that. We do pray, Lord, as we would struggle and fight through many trials and difficulties and battle with unbelief at times, Lord, that we would not be afraid to ask you for help, that we would not be afraid to share our struggles and our need for help from our other brothers and sisters, that we would be strengthened by the community of the saints, the covenant people here, as we seek to honor you. And Father, remind us often of your love for us, Lord, of the work that you are doing in this world, and that you draw near to your people. So that when we fear, we know, Lord, that it is you that hold us fast. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.